This is Varun Harun, Principal Correspondent for ISMG. I'm speaking with Derek Mankey, Global Security Strategist for Fortinet. He's going to be sharing his view of the security landscape locally and also giving us some details on the information sharing initiative that he's involved in. He will also be sharing information on the why and how of the criminal underground and how it operates in this region. Derek, tell me a bit more about the Cyber Threat Alliance. Sure. So our initiative for the Cyber Threat Alliance is unprecedented now. It's a vendor-led initiative. We founded this back in May of this year, so it's actually pretty new. Traditional threat intelligence sharing has been um, basic. So it's just sharing a couple basic measures. Here's some, here are some bad actors or some bad IP addresses. Typically in the past, when we look at threat intelligence and information sharing, it happens in silos. There's specific vertical focus. So there's things like FSISAC, which is just focused on sharing threat information for financial services. ESISAC or ICS, or that's in the oil and gas and energy and industrial state. For us, what we're really trying to do is sort of bridge that gap because in, in my experience, you know, if, if there's an attack going after a financial institution, a lot of the intelligence and characteristics behind that attack can still be usefully applied in terms of defense for other organizations and other verticals. So that's really part of the goal of the Cyber Threat Alliance and what Fortinet's driving forward with that is taking our intelligence, combining it with the three other founding members of the Cyber Threat Alliance, so that's Symantec, McAfee, and Palo Alto Networks, combining our intelligence because really the expertise is in the vendor's wheelhouse. I mean, even at Fortinet here, we have a massive threat intelligence team. We have over 200 people employed worldwide, millions and millions of sensors. We're observing over 600,000 hacking attempts just in a minute. There's a lot of intelligence coming through. Our goal is to make that actionable. The goal is really to get anybody who wants to speak threat intelligence with us to be able to connect and start. You can really think of it as a giant ISAC, the Information Sharing Center, right? What we're trying to do in the CTA is adopt new threat intelligence specifications where we can share a lot more comprehensive information. We're actually working with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and MITRE. Uh, MITRE is very famous. They're known for uh, their CVE specification on vulnerabilities. So we're working with them to adopt the standard of sticks and taxi that they've created. Our goal is to make it turnkey. So we're creating our own platform, essentially, so that uh, this is in terms of roadmap where we're heading next with the CTA, is so that when new members are joining, we can just hand them a turnkey solution where they can tie in to our network, they don't have to develop their own solution for it. So it's basically going to be plugging into that central intelligence hub, and they can get anything relevant to their use cases that they can use for it. It's vendor-driven right now, so it's the founding members. In terms of the applicants, it's actually an array between independent researchers, uh, large enterprise, and even telecommunication carrier. So anybody can, can apply right now. We're going through a review process uh, to make sure that it, uh, it's the right fit for everybody, and we're already starting to see a lot of traction on this. Cyber criminal activity today is likely more organized than what the defenders have. So black hats are able to communicate more freely and share information while defenders are traditionally working in silos, right? So that said, we know that that's changing. We just spoke about the Cyber Threat Alliance and mm -hmm. other initiatives. So uh, can you tell me uh, how these initiatives work? What is their need? What is their potential? I think you're a part of something called FIRST as well. Yes, yeah. So generally you can think of it in two areas. So there's ISAP which is the Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and that's mostly the threat intelligence sharing. So when threat events are discovered, how can you share that intelligence with other entities belonging to that organization? And I'll get into some ways that you can do that in a second. Uh, but the other way is the uh, CERT, the Computer Emergency Response. Um, first is um, an excellent example of a forum. So generally with Computer Emergency Response, you have national, so you have the government, Computer Emergency Response. But then you also have these Computer Emergency Response teams sitting in, uh, in large enterprise and carrier as well that are also responding to these events as they occur. So if there is a data 
breach, say, in an enterprise. That is where the enterprise's computer emergency response will take place. The national level computer emergency response is something the vendors have typically participated with. But this doesn't actually happen as much as it should. And this is something I'd like to see happen more so that when we get this, say, vulnerability attack information, we can share it with the government. And then the government computer emergency response can take action on that. They can notify any sort of affected industry in their nation and also law enforcement as well to, to go and investigate these. If we're seeing a whole bunch of attack activity coming from a server in the data center, that's very important. We can share it with them so they can actually go and investigate it and take down that server. That's the actual fight against cybercrime, right? So again, it's a good example of success in these public and private partnerships, which I think need to continue, but it's not happening everywhere and it's not happening as much as it should. But I, I truly think it's a way forward too. This was first you were talking about, right? Uh, yeah, so sorry, backing up. So the certs I was talking about on a per-government level so will typically work directly with each individual cert because they all have their own use cases to projects and things like this. But first is a forum. So there's over 300 computer emergency response teams and over 60 national computer emergency response in there. It's more of a broad sharing forum where if we need to get a hold of a certain government or a certain cert when we find out this information, you can facilitate that information through first. It's an excellent forum. It's been around a long time now, over 25 years. I think this is its 27th year anniversary. They have a great annual conference and very good talks and very good mindset as well because it's all computer emergency response. It's not like you go to some of the security shows where there's competition and commercial interest. With FIRST, everybody's trying to solve the same problem, so they're all on board for that, and it's really exciting that way. And you're also involved in something called a zero-day vulnerability disclosure framework. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think it's, it's attributable to you directly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so this is a program I founded well, years ago now. So I wrote Responsible Disclosure Framework. So the idea is we have... As I said, in our security operations center, we have over 200 researchers, right? Um, these are everything from malware researchers, mobile researchers, the malicious websites. Part of that is the exploits, right? So the exploits are the weapons. They're the ways to hack into systems, to find vulnerabilities. This is what the bad guys do. So what we're trying to do is to get a step ahead of the bad guys by discovering these vulnerabilities before they do. It's what's known as the zero day, right? So the difference being, when a bad guy discovers a zero day, they use it for a malicious purpose. They keep it to themselves. They might sell it. What we're trying to do is two things. One, through this program, we're discovering the vulnerability and and under partnership, we report it to the affected vendor. So this would be you know, somebody like Microsoft or Adobe or um, now with the Internet of Things, other vendors as well. The idea being that they fix it, and then as they roll out the fix, we can disclose it. Because we discover it before the fix becomes available, uh, we're actually creating protections on our product as well. So it's a true zero-day protection. By doing that, we can also generate an early warning system so we can detect activity out there should somebody else start discover this issue and start attacking. So it's been a pretty successful program. It's a specialized team doing it, uh, but it's, it's uh, very interesting. So let's change tack a little bit. There's a thriving underground today as far as primer toolkit, Zeus and Citadel are being sold, much like legitimate software is sold, right? Mm-hmm. Authors are providing everything from user manuals to support to mm-hmm. customization, everything. So how does the system work? How does the entire cybercrime network work? And what are the implications going forward for security when you have such an organized adversary in place? That's a really good question. So generally, the system is working by mirroring legitimate business models in the real world for malicious purpose, right? So what they're doing is things like um, there's crime services now, CAAS, crime as a service, as, as I call it. And then there's the producers, so crimeware. On the services end, there's everything from consulting to botnet rentals. So if you want to rent a network to launch a distributed denial of service attack, you know, the bad guys are monetizing that. Likewise, they're also monetizing things like spam campaigns and what we call fully undetected systems where they, they have their own quality assurance programs where they'll take, you give them a piece of malware you've developed and they'll run it through a whole gambit, try to change it to try, try to guarantee that no security vendors can be able to detect it. Perhaps the largest challenge is the affiliate programs 
programs. Again, this is modeled after marketing in the real world, but two different programs, PPI, paper install, and PPP, which is paper purchase. PPI is the most prevalent one. And this is where an organization wants to infect as many systems as they can with something like, say, maybe a, a banking trojan, right? The organization, criminal organization, might not have the technical expertise to do this, so they pay middlemen, affiliates to do it. So they've built in this whole system. It's a full-blown control panel reporting system where they will pay individuals. It's, on our research, it's about $140 US to infect, say, a, a, about a thousand systems. So they'll give them a piece of malware and say, go and infect a thousand systems. We'll pay you $140. Once they've infected the systems, so say it's person number one, those systems are reporting back saying, person number one infected me. So they get credit for that. They're tracking that. And it's just like marketing in the real world. It's just mirroring those legitimate models and they have all the tracking on there and, and everything. And of course, you asked about the security implications. So to me, the biggest security implication of that, because of these affiliates, each person that they're paying to infect these systems has their own method to infect the system. It's not just one spam, massive spam email going out. Someone might be using Twitter or Facebook or someone else might be using a different system. So there's all these different methods and social engineering tricks and tactics. So basically what it amounts to is these attacks are coming fast and furious from all these different angles, which is a very big problem. What are the kind of activities that you're seeing in the Asian region? You know, how harmful do you think that the lack of disclosure laws in this region is to the ecosystem? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of things happening here. So I just pulled up some intelligences. This is through our own intelligence systems um, at Fortinet over the last three months. And there's a lot of activities still happening. Close to 2 million different types of incidents in terms of hacking attempts. You know, close to a million uh, in terms of malware. One of the most interesting to me was the case of the Vladabini virus. So this is also known as NJRAT. And what this is, is a piece of malware that infects systems. It has a lot of functionality. It can enable web cameras, screenshots, and captures audio feeds, key log information, bank account credentials, or anything like this, and send it off to the attackers. But what's interesting is that there is a very high concentration of it still in India. It actually accounted for about 4% of our global attack activity, just coming from India alone. And this is a virus, what we call a botnet. It's a network of infected machines that steal information. This is something that Microsoft had tried to take down at the end of July, but it's still very active in, in India. Uh, you know, we've seen over 35,000 different instances of, of this attack since the beginning of August. So it's still a, a concern here. What's also interesting is that a very old virus, this is actually quite different compared to the global threat landscape, but a very old virus, which is pretty famous, is known as Conficker. It's back from 2008. This has died down in America. We don't really see it in the US or Canada or other regions, but um, they still have very high prevalence of it here in India. Derek, what are some of the biggest challenges facing organization security-wise? Right. Okay. So I think one of the biggest ones moving forward is going to be the vulnerability management problem. So this spawns into Internet of Things. Heartbleed and Shellshock, I think, which are pretty famous now. They're just two vulnerabilities. Were they big problems? Yes, they're big problems. Interestingly enough, going back to the threat landscape in India, we saw, according to our data, in the last three months, about 237,000 attempts to hack into Shellshock. But Heartbleed wasn't really on our radar. So Shellshock seems to be a lot more popular here. Um, there hasn't been a, too much Heartbleed activity lately. But those are two vulnerabilities. We want it to around 16,000 vulnerabilities right now. Traditionally, a lot of those going back in the years have been Microsoft and Adobe and the, the usual targets. But what we're discovering now is attacks on non-traditional platforms. One of our top 10 attacks we saw in India was against a web uh, IP security camera. So it's not a Windows platform. It's not Adobe. Like These are real attacks happening. You know, we're already seeing attacks into network attached storage and hard drives. And the attacks are happening there. I expect, I mean, and these products are generally ripe with vulnerabilities because they haven't undergone a 10-year process like Microsoft has to harden their products. A lot of these new vendors, new technology developers are just getting the product out the door, but there's not a secure developer 
development cycle in place. So it's it's really this perfect storm waiting to happen because there's all these security holes that are just going to be sitting on those devices. As I said, we're monitoring about 16,000 vulnerabilities. I expect that number to double in the next one to two years. And the problem, again, going back to my original point, is patch management because there's probably no update mechanisms on these products. There's probably going to be no updates for a while on them. How do you solve that? How do you defend against that when hackers are trying to get into your systems? So again, things like web application firewall, intrusion prevention systems are going to be really important to defend against those things when all of these security holes are opening up. And again, with the, the IO Internet of Things conversation, we're already starting to see valid attacks happening on there. And um, generally, these are devices that have memory, processing power, and a network connection, and they're usually not inspected. And there's no antivirus available to sit on these platforms. So you really have to start moving towards network-based security platforms to uh, solve that problem. Right now, we're just talking about IP-based devices that are already on the network. The next couple of years, you have other devices uh, piling on. Isn't it a throwback network-based security? Yeah, in a sense. The, I guess the difference now is that it's getting much more into the content-based inspection because now it, it, you're talking about firewalls, gateway-level security, layer 3 stuff, right? Now we're getting to, obviously, with advanced persistent threats, it's like layer 7 inspection, what's actually happening at a deeper level of, of inspection. That's the difference now. That's where network security needs to head to properly understand these threats as they're going through the network is, what sort of threat is this? Is this an Android threat? Is this a Windows threat? Is this a, a threat for my security camera or my hard drive? That's where network-based inspection has to be in order to, to inspect these sorts of things. There's been so much change in the security landscape in the last two years. Let's take a broad perspective here. What are the next two years going to be like? What are the major upcoming trends from a security perspective? So I think, number one, I said it earlier, the vulnerability piece, first of all. In total, there's maybe fifty or 60,000 vulnerabilities out there. In terms of the actual critical ones, around 16,000, I expect that number to be on the, the big rise over the next one to two years. In terms of the critical ones, probably double. That's because of everything we just talked about, all the security holes that are out there in the patching problem. Going to malware, Android is the new Windows now. We're seeing a ton of movement towards the Android platform. There's over a million different Android viruses that we're seeing. There's an 8,400% increase of Android malware over the last year, so that is something that people really can expect to happen in higher volume. Broadly, I think what's going to drive a lot of the volume is a lot of the automation technologies by, by the bad guys because they're always trying to evade security. So there's a ton of obfuscation. Traditionally, that's just happened for malware. Now we're seeing obfuscation on websites for like JavaScript and other pieces of code on there, protocols for botnets. So because of all this obfuscation, it's a lot of jumbling, which just means a whole bunch of more data, which means in terms of inspecting that from a security standpoint, you're going to need a lot more storage as well. Ten years ago, in our labs, we had 400,000 viruses we're monitoring, like less than a terabyte. We're getting that in one day now. And that's, so just, just imagine where the net, and that's accelerating. So that's not going to stop. I expect us to see a ton of volume still in different malware. IPv6 now. Looking at just the spam landscape, IPv4, it's about 4 billion entries, which is like almost the population of the planet that's getting there. At least half of that has been saturated in terms of spam. A lot of these IP addresses moving to IPv6 is going to be a lot more hiding spots too. So that's another big increase in volume like between all these different areas that they can assign addresses and hide. Generally, with security, the concept of network security and, well, cybersecurity and attacks are basic uh, computer science problem. You trick a process and crash and subvert, but it's all these different layers that are built onto it now, and that's something I definitely guarantee. As we move forward with new software technologies, there's always going to be new security holes popping up, and then it becomes, if it can be built, it can be taken apart. How quickly can you react to it? How proactive can you be? It's just like, you know, a big problem in industrial control and critical infrastructure is that those networks used to be air gaps completely closed door and not connected to the internet. That was the design of them. That's a security measure, air gap concept. That is not a reality today. All these systems are connected. They need. It's all about business. It's about cost effectiveness, remote management, outsourcing, all these sorts of things that now these air gap networks are connected to the internet. And that's a big problem. But again, we're not going to go back in time there. That's just a reality people have to accept. Thanks, Derek. That was uh, Derek Mankey, uh, Global Security Strategist for Fortinet. This is Varun Haran, Principal Correspondent for ISMG India. Thank you for listening.